Welcome to the Later in Life Planning Show with Patrick Colley, brought to you by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, here's your host, Patrick Colley. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, where our mission is to shield the middle class from the costs and the challenges of getting older. Regular listeners of this show know that I emphasize how your estate planning and other financial planning, legal planning should include asset protection because there are predictable and costly threats that come down the pike for most middle-class families. Those costs can be both financial and emotional for your whole family. When I talk about estate planning, I'm not just talking about What happens to your stuff when you're gone? People are living longer thanks to advances in medicine. But the one nut that the medical community has not been able to crack is cognitive decline in the later years of life. So planning for incapacity is very important. When you think about the level of care that may be necessary in the event of cognitive decline, asset protection is a very good idea. That's why I believe that the middle class needs asset protection more than anyone else. Care in the later years of life can wipe out your life savings. If you tune in next week, I'll return to the legal aspects of planning and protection. But today, I am joined by a guest who will give more of an idea about why planning and protection are necessary in the first place. To share insights about Alzheimer's disease, by far the most common form of dementia. I'm joined by Clay Jacobs, the executive director of the Greater Pennsylvania Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Clay, thank you for being here on the Later in Life Planning Show to share your insights into such a prevalent and powerful issue affecting so many Central Pennsylvania families. It is an absolute pleasure to be here with you and also that you're taking time to highlight this important issue when what we know about Alzheimer's disease and all sorts of other dementias is changing so rapidly and yet unfortunately impacting so many. Taking times like this is just vital to help share resources, information, and learning with so many. Yeah, and it it is an exciting time, and I didn't even know the half of it until you and I spoke before going on the air today. Uh, But talk. Well, let's let's start broadly and talk about the role that the Alzheimer's Association plays. Knowing this has always, I mean, for a very long time, Alzheimer's disease has been uh, a prevalent issue. It's it's one that a lot of people for many years had had very little in the way of information or resources to help them navigate it. Um, the Alzheimer's Association, of course, is a very recognizable name. It's it's a well-established organization. So explain a little bit for listeners what, what the organization does uh, for, for the, the Alzheimer's community. Absolutely. And you talk about the, how long we've had some acknowledgement or recognition of Alzheimer's disease or cognitive changes. I mean, we can go back to ancient Greek plays and they actually term it demens instead of dementia. And so we know these symptoms and things have been around. And in the early 1900s, Dr. Alois Alzheimer identified the first case actually in a woman in her 50s. But it wasn't until the early 1980s here in the U.S. that the Alzheimer's Association came into being. And really then it was a group of caregivers and researchers who were seeing their loved ones change and didn't know what to do. And so what they did is they met together for support groups and planning and all of those pieces but then also knew that really in history, we hadn't really seen things around research around this disease. And so the association was founded to advance research and to advance care and support. And that has been the core of our mission ever since. 
And here in Pennsylvania, that's particularly vital because seven organizations came together to firm that first Alzheimer's Association. One of them was based in Pittsburgh. And so Pennsylvania, for 40-plus years, has been at the core of how do we deal with this disease. And to that, that is really what has stayed part of our mission. But as we learn more, we've grown from there. And as I look at the website for the Greater Pennsylvania Chapter, for those listening, it's alz.org backslash PA or forward slash PA, I guess. So alz.org slash PA. And, you know, there's all kinds of resources on there. And I think it it reflects what you just said about uh, wanting to find advances in medicine. But in the meantime, you know, there's there's all kinds of resources for, for someone trying to figure out. I'm seeing signs that let's say a parent is asking the same question over and over, even though there's been an answer provided that's causing me some worry and you can provide information. And you, so, you know, things like the ALZ navigator, you know, maybe you can talk about that or, or some of the other resources on the website. Absolutely. And, and so what we look at as an organization, while we want to ultimately end this disease, it is important we provide the things needed for families today. And that comes in a variety of things because our, our goal is to be, uh, there for everyone at any time when they need us. And so that means when we start at things like support groups, whether it's a local support group by facilitated volunteers or things like education programs, everything from basic awareness or 10 warning signs to money management and healthy living for your brain and body, how to uh, improve care, respond to behaviors and communications. Even when you think of in-depth care planning, right, this is a progressive disease that uh, changes as the disease moves forward. And so your care issues today are not the same as two years ago. All of these things we want to be able to provide for folks and do it in a way that they're comfortable with. And so our core services are available in person. They're available online. They're available via phone. In fact, one of our most used services, our 24-7 helpline, it's available in 200 languages and dialects. And really, you can call on everything. I, I heard something on the news about a glass of wine being good for my brain to your question of it's the middle of the night. My loved one can't sleep. They're thinking there are things outside. I don't know what to do. And so our hope is that when people reach out, especially in this disease, which can be isolating, you may only reach out once. You may only have that chance. And so that they have a warm voice to speak to, that they have someone in their community to speak to, that they have knowledgeable experts to speak to. We want to be able to do all of that on the care and support side of our work because we know already this journey is too devastating for too many. Right. If anyone listening uh, has a loved one going through these issues or if maybe a neighbor, a, a, fr- a friend, uh, the the website again is alz.org slash PA, that 24-7 helpline, 800-272-3900. And I noticed also on the website that, you know, it, it takes probably more than what any one organization can do by itself with its own resources. You're always looking for volunteers. You know, there's the the annual walk to end Alzheimer's. And of course, that's all over the country. But but I know it's it's something that that is uh, quite popular here in central Pennsylvania. Um, talk to me about, you know, opportunities if someone wanted to be involved in this uh, this fight to end the disease, but also to improve lives in the meantime. Absolutely. And, and I think when you talk about impacting lives, this it's that old idea of, right, of a rising tide raises all ships. People experience this disease in their community, whatever they define it as. It may be my neighborhood, my workplace, my faith community, my family, however it is, those are the folks you turn to when you first have concerns about memory. They're the ones providing care. They're the ones impacted. And so our work is 
How do we form partnerships so that people are more educated and have that support in all of those settings? But then also, very specifically, there is stigma around this disease, unlike other chronic diseases, right? We see the person we care about changing. They notice the changes in themselves where their personality or ability to speak or ability to participate in daily life is changing. That stigma and that fear is ever-present. And so when you talk about community, yes, how do we connect with all of the community, but then also how do we give an opportunity to fight back? Things like the Walk 10 to Alzheimer's are one of those things where it is the second largest peer-to-peer fundraising event in the country. The local walk in Harrisburg is one of the largest in the state. And yet we know it's just a drop because what it often is, not just fundraising, it's the first time people come to be with others like them, whose families have dealt with this disease, who are living with the disease themselves. Even as part of our ceremony uh, at the, the Walk 10 to Alzheimer's, we lift up what we hope to be the first survivor. And when you're dealing with that type of impact, there is nothing like being with others who understand it. And every year what we hear is, I wish I had known about you when. Oh, absolutely. And there's nothing like walking in a sea of people dressed in purple to know, okay, I thought I was the only one because you you get this tunnel vision that I'm around the clock caring for my loved one and it's all consuming and you start to forget your own well-being. And then when you see that kind of community, it's understandable that somebody would say, boy, I wish I knew about this earlier. There's all these resources. There's all this support that that can make life a lot easier. That's absolutely true. And that's why partners like you and so many others are important that day of walk as well. Because when people reach out, they realize not only is it me individually, but there are organizations and companies and support and all of these other folks who may provide the thing that I was looking for and and I have a chance to do it. Or I may have wondered about research and I get to learn more. Or I wanted to talk to my elected official and actually they're right here listening to people's stories. Right, right. All of those things uh, really make it an impactful day and, and hopefully make a difference in people's lives because that's that's fundamentally what the work is about. Well, we're going to come back from a break and talk some more with Clay Jacobs from the Alzheimer's Association about all kinds of facts and resources and hope when it comes to Alzheimer's. In the meantime, if you're looking to uh, build that shield to get ready for something like this happening to you or your family, I offer a weekly workshop. You can go to KeystoneElderLaw.com and use the workshops tab to get registered for the next estate planning or long-term care workshop Learn more so that you can take action. We'll be back in a moment for more on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. Now, more of the Later in Life Planning Show, here on News Radio WHP 580. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm Patrick Cauley with Keystone Elder Law. I'm your host, and my guest today is is Clay Jacobs, the executive director of the Greater Pennsylvania Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Clay, before the break, we were talking about all of the resources and education and uh, volunteer opportunities and, and the full mission of the Alzheimer's Association. So if people are listening to this and they want to know, uh, maybe they have some concerns about a loved one's memory. Maybe there's, uh, you know, and there is a difference between normal cognitive aging. Uh, There was a previous episode of this show uh, with Dr. Rollin Wright of Penn State uh, Hershey Medical Center, and she talked about what's going on in the brain of a person living with dementia. Uh, But but dementia is an umbrella term, and Alzheimer's is one type of dementia, happens to be the most common type, 
but there are other types. Can you talk a little bit about where Alzheimer's fits into the scheme of things and how does somebody take some steps to figure out, is this just normal cognitive aging or is there actual cognitive impairment that, that you know, there's something medically abnormal? Yeah, and that was an exciting episode to hear Dr. Wright speak about some of that because that is often where people have questions. And really, our role at the association uh, is not necessarily at clinicians, but it is specifically about helping families engage and know what questions to ask and know how to understand and be prepared for those doctor's visits, all of those things. And so I think one of the things, to your point, that we hear most often is just that basic. What is the difference between dementia and Alzheimer's disease? And it is. It's, it's that broad umbrella, right? We often think of it as a category. So if we see certain symptoms, uh, we know and we say it's dementia. That doesn't mean it clarifies what's causing it or how do we interact or others. And so it's almost like if you think of dementia, like a big category umbrella like flowers, well, Alzheimer's disease might be the most common. You may ask somebody to name a flower and they say roses. Alzheimer's disease is like that if you think of that big umbrella. But it has its own causation or hallmarks of the disease. The plaques and tangles we see in the brain are unique to Alzheimer's disease. But there are also other forms of dementia and even delirium that sometimes are misdiagnosed. And these are all things that impact daily living, right? So they're progressive, they're, they change, they impact daily living, and they could be around personality or judgment, memory, recall, all of these pieces. Often when we talk to families, the first part is really just identifying that it is something different than the norm. We could certainly share a little bit about some of the other forms of dementia, but that's often one of the biggest challenges is someone says, okay, it's just normal aging, or I just had a stressful day. But you start seeing these things happen more frequently and more severely, then we start to wonder, is it something going on? And that fear can often lead us from getting a diagnosis on maybe something that's reversible or treatable versus something more chronic. And so that first step is often just acknowledging it or if you notice in someone else saying something. Okay. So once, so I think you're right. I mean, to, to reorient towards uh, at least asking questions, knowing the resources. And of course there are specialized clinicians available, but but it's first knowing what to look for. And I know that that uh, having looked at alz.org slash PA, that there's plenty of, of information about what to look for. Um, I, you know, I think another question that comes up is there are these different kinds of dementia. Alzheimer's is the most common, but people want to know how common. And you actually now have county by county data on this. So you can say in Pennsylvania, where you can actually start to show where maybe resources could be used because, um, you know, both both the prevalence in that population of people 65 or older, or I understand there's some maybe racial or ethnic uh, differences as well. So talk a little bit about that, some of the information that is now available. Yeah, and, and I think there's twofold, right? As we look at this piece, this understanding of what is Alzheimer's disease, what isn't, has changed drastically, right? As medical technology and other things have improved and getting to that differential diagnosis on what is Parkinson-related dementia or what's frontal temporal dementia? What do they mean? How do we treat them differently? But often what we had seen is without that technology, we kind of grouped together or they were viewed solely as disease of aging. And so there wasn't a look at where they are, what's happening, what are the commonalities? And to your point is there's been a lot of work there, but just recently, actually just in July of this summer, Rush Medical School for the first time ever look county by county across the U.S., specifically on Alzheimer's disease, to get a feel for the impact um, in those markets. And if there was some commonality. 
And and we do know some things, right? We knew before then that African Americans were twice as likely as their Caucasian counterparts to get the disease. We knew Hispanic and Latino communities were about one and a half times as likely. And so when we look at county data, we see that actually bear out. That things like access to medical care, racial and ethnic backgrounds, access to uh in some cases, uh, appropriate diet and exercise programs, all these things. Now, there's correlation. We have to do more work to see what the cause is and those pieces. But what it does start to do is, particularly in the East Coast and Southeast, it helps us know where the greatest incidence of Alzheimer's disease are. And then we could start to look at what's the commonality. What are we seeing here? What are the things we can change? Even things on how do we resource health departments and physicians and educate because we know people are out there. When we compare something like Cumberland County, at almost 11% of the population over 65 with Alzheimer's disease. Some of the largest populations in the country are about 15% or 14%. It's not that different. And yet if we look at things like uh, diagnostic rates in healthcare offices or healthcare systems, even if there's gaps in those, we know that there are people going undiagnosed, living at home, who aren't even starting to have a conversation. And so this type of data is incredibly important it then also knows when we talk about how do we get to an accurate diagnosis because all these forms of dementia we may treat differently and we need to treat differently. And so uh, information is power. And really we're seeing that in the past 10 years we've learned more about this disease than we have in the 100 before it. And that's one of the things that I would take away as incredibly exciting. And is, uh, that's exactly the word I was going to use is, is exciting because uh, not only do you have a better sense of where it is, where it's showing up, uh, the communities that that may, might need greater support, but you know we're about to get into. Uh, there's actually some been some amazing advances in what you do once there is a diagnosis, and you know historically, I mean if we're past the point where we're just writing it off as quote unquote senility, and we're actually looking at a disease process affecting the brain in one kind or another, and labeling it one kind of dementia or another. Um, you know, the, 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 the best that, that the headlines were offering there for a while was, well, there might be a new drug uh, approved by the FDA that will, I guess, increase the encoding of memory. So you can think of memory as, do you encode it in the first place and just have trouble recalling it? Or is it just never imprinted on the brain in the first place? And so er, one of the earliest signs of, of Alzheimer's, of course, is short-term memory loss. If, if my education is serving me well... But, um, you know, for a while it was just maybe helping that retention of memory a little bit longer, but it was doing nothing for the overall disease process, which of course was a train that left the station and it was going to keep going. But talk to me about some of the newer developments where now we have some hope that maybe we can stop the progression of the disease and not just address the symptoms. Yeah, thanks so much. And, And that's such a big topic. Right. When we talk about different forms of dementia, they may have different hallmarks. They may impact different parts of the brain, all of these things. And it's, you know, when we, we know that that's an important step because, as I said earlier, we see the person we love changing or we know, but it's harder to put in point why. And really, it's the part of their brain that's being impacted by Alzheimer's disease or another form of dementia. So, as you mentioned, right, in Alzheimer's disease, the frontal lobe and the hippocampus are first impacted. So it's personality and judgment, and the hippocampus, it's that short-term memory. And so, so often when you talk about that targeted, the historical treatment has been around, from a pharmaceutical standpoint, treating the symptoms of that disease, more effective earlier on for the folks that's effective, and then trailing off. 
and then really looking at psychosocial interventions. How do we communicate better? How do we engage better? How do we really put in person-centered care plans? And, and so I think that history is important because that still very much has a role. Even as we talk about the things we're hopeful for, there are millions of people impacted today that for us to provide the best care and best ex experience and quality of life, that's vital. What we do talk about is that just recently through new FDA-approved medications, we are finding medications that, to your point, treat the underlying biology of the disease for the first time ever. And we're at a point where we go from FDA approval where they're showing cognitive benefit on activities of daily living and memory screenings to per certain percentages of the population, where each one seems to be improving upon the prior. And where even now we're talking about things from Medicare and Medicaid on having them approved for the general public. And so it's a big topic we can talk more about, but just that idea of moving from uh, palliative treatment to potentially inter interacting early on so some people may never get the most severe symptoms of the disease is a true game changer in the in the history of how we engage with Alzheimer's disease. It absolutely is. And I love that you say that the first and foremost mission of the Alzheimer's Association is to destroy the disease. Let's end it. In other words, you're working yourself out of a job. I love it. And uh, and I hope you achieve that. But we're going to come back and talk about more of this, these trends and in, in exciting developments in research and treatment of Alzheimer's. So we'll be back in a moment for more of the Later in Life Planning show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law right here on News Radio. WHP 580. Welcome back to the Later in Life Planning Show on News Radio WHP 580. Here's Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm your host, Patrick Colley. My guest today is Clay Jacobs, the Executive Director of the Greater Pennsylvania Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. You can find them on the web at alz.org slash PA. If you uh, know someone who would benefit from their 24-7 helpline, the number is 800-272-3900. That's the Alzheimer's Association. Clay, before the break, we were getting into the exciting changes in the detection and treatment of Alzheimer's disease, something that there hadn't been such a tectonic shift uh, in years and years and years, there has, hasn't been something this exciting, and now it's all rapidly happening. Uh, so from detection to treatment, what are the most exciting takeaways that, that listeners should know about? It is. It's, it's a really important point because as we look at all of the updates and news and other things we've done, they're really a decade plus in the making, right? For decades, funding for Alzheimer's disease research and dementia research had been flat, and then a little over 10 years ago, you know, in that 10 to 15 years, we started seeing the U.S. government invest in dementia research. And in fact, the, the list of top funders of research in the world are the U.S. government, the Chinese government, and then oddly enough, the Alzheimer's Association. But all of that investment is yielding to real returns. And so when you mention about diagnosis and treatment, treatment's probably the one that's been the most visible in that we've had two FDA treatments approved by the, or two treatments approved by the FDA within the past two years. And just this July, another released its results and their intent to go to the FDA, which showed stronger results so far. So we fully expect the FDA to move forward with traditional approval there as well. So within the next six months, you may have three FDA approved treatments for the underlying biology of the disease. 
These are all in a class of some of the first medications that really started seeing uh, movement called monoclonal antibodies. So they all end in MAB. Uh, they're all MABs. And essentially what they, they seem to do is clear plaque in the brain. And we've seen in testing that it's shown improvement in activities of daily listening and living and in cognitive testing and screening. And so what that does is that opens the door for more research in that arena. How do we move from these are all infusion treatments to maybe an oral treatment if we're on it earlier? Because these are approved in the earliest stages of the disease, mild cognitive impairment early. If we start it on earlier, is there longer benefit? If folks stay on it longer, is the benefit there? It opens up all of these things. Now, what they aren't is a silver bullet, right? We know there are many more forms of dementia, many other variables, but part of what we see is this is the start of a wave, and you can't get to a cure without the first treatment. Absolutely. And this goes to what you were saying earlier about, okay, there are different kinds of dementia. And and very commonly, there are mixed dementias where you might have Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, which involves many strokes in the brain. So you might have multiple kinds, but that's going to affect how you treat it, the effectiveness of a treatment. But what I find fascinating about these MABs, as you put it, these, these uh, new medications that are attacking those amyloid plaques that that are known to be correlated with Alzheimer's disease. I just, you know, I listen to uh, as many sources, medical doctors, researchers uh, who have podcasts and so forth, and they've said that, you know, it's it's amazing that this is seems to be having some effectiveness because they've never been able to figure out, are those amyloid plaques in the brain um, the cause of the symptoms of dementia or, or Alzheimer's, or is it just a byproduct of something else going on? And in fact, they've had um, autopsies where they found the brain of a person who died just riddled with these amyloid plaques, but it actually wasn't a person who had cognitive impairment. So they're just befuddled sometimes, but there seems to be promise is what you're saying, where the, you know, with this first wave of MABs, they're going to be able to attack these plaques. And if you do it early enough, it's kind of like, and I, I'm using an analogy you gave me before we went on the air, where, you know, when uh, back when we were treating HIV with the hope that it never went into full-blown AIDS, it's kind of the same thought process where you attack early cognitive impairment and it never blows up into what can no longer be treated as Alzheimer's disease. Is that, did I get that right? Yeah, that's certainly a way to look at it because ultimately, by its very definition, you can't get Alzheimer's disease without going through a stage of mild cognitive impairment. And so if you can keep people from ever going through that mild cognitive impairment, by definition, they, they can't reach that stage of Alzheimer's disease. And there's so many other things that are being looked at from tau and inflammation and glucose and all of these pieces because we know hallmarks. We know the things we see. And so the best we can do is start to, to work on them. But even that is 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 almost profound because if you think of how we were able to image this disease just 20 years ago, we were having folks, maybe even 15, 10 years ago, participate in research trials where we weren't 100% sure they had Alzheimer's disease or just Alzheimer's disease. And so now you're seeing all of these things move forward. And even as we talk about diagnosis, you know, the National Institute on Aging just released updated guidance along with the Association on Diagnosis itself. But even things like we will see in the near term direct-to-consumer things like blood tests to diagnose the disease. Now, the hope is that uh, blood tests go through the same FDA process and they're done with the physician and others, but that idea that we could look at 
these biomarkers, biological markers of any kind that put outside higher risk and then start a treatment that intervenes. I mean, it is the pathway for so many diseases. We look at cholesterol and high blood pressure. That's the same thing we do then, right? We, we identify a risk. We treat it earlier, hopefully, so people don't have the most severe form of the disease. And those are some of the things that we're talking about for the first time ever when we talk about cognitive health. And if there's one thing I hear from uh, clients as as a frustration uh, when they're speaking to me at Keystone Elder Law, it's, yes, we know that there's some uh, some possible memory problems, but, but we can't get in to see uh, an, a specialist. We can't get in to see a neurologist or, or a, a dementia expert for months. There's just this waiting period. So part of everything we're talking about is just attracting maybe more medical professionals to treating this um, this uh, dramatic uh, uptick, this this common disease. There, there's a need for it, and maybe we need more workforce development to to get people into this field. But this is a possible answer to that problem, where you know people with blood pressure issues can put a cuff around their arm and take that uh, that test their blood pressure at home. And then they can start potential treatments. People with diabetes can prick their finger and and do and check their blood sugar at home. And wouldn't this be something if you didn't have to wait to get into the doctor's office, the specialist, because you can uh, do a, a, a consumer friendly blood test that will show you a protein that seems to lead to these amyloid plaques in the brain? So certainly in those examples, I think we're far away from that in Alzheimer's disease. For it to be in a place where you can do that, that's not to say it is in the future, because even now, folks can do genetic testing, right, home, and it says you have a history of, but you may never get the disease or not. True. And so it's a complicated thing as we're looking at, but those types of things, or a blood test in a research setting, or down the road in a physician's office, absolutely. And, and I think you go to, you know, you mentioned what you hear from clients, it is ultimately our role as a patient advocacy organization, and what early diagnosis and access to treatment means is more time. And so that may mean whether it's at a primary health care setting where you're just getting screened for the disease to notice changes, right? Something as basic as that, which is already covered under Medicare, is not a universally used thing, right? An annual wellness checkup that has a memory screening. So you know if somebody's improving or changing. We could jump to things like blood tests, but there are resources in place. Here in Pennsylvania, last year, Act 9 passed, which is really around education for physicians and support for families. There's so much we can be doing today. And so much we need to be doing because, to your point, some of those other things like blood tests and others are on the near horizon. And, and, and that will just change how we approach it. So it's the how do we prepare today for what's to come in the hope that we give as many people as much time as possible with their loved ones. That's, that's the era. When we talk about the era of treatment, that is fundamentally where we are right now. And I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, there are certain, uh, there's genetic testing available right now and people want to know, is this uh, genetically determined? Well, that itself is a complicated question. I was just listening to a doctor speak about this uh, this past week where uh, they were going through all the various places on the, you know, the, 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 the chromosomes you get from your mother, the chromosomes you get from your father, and really only this one type that if it's on both of them, then it's what they call deterministic, meaning you will get Alzheimer's and it will probably have an early onset, but that's exceptionally rare. Others, you would have a chromosome here and there, and then who knows? You may or may not ever get Alzheimer's. But I love that you you bring it all back to this is about providing more time, you know, more time to be with family, more time to to just take time to enjoy 
the quality of life, to do planning. If you have put off your power of attorney or your other estate planning, now would be a good time to do it. And and it just allows for, for more time. And how many families would just give anything to have that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's the universal on, on any of this as we look at it. The planning and the resources and all the complexity of what the disease journey could be, uh, at least today, is still the same. Now, how do we address that is is part of what's important and part of what we have to do with families across the Commonwealth. And after the break, we'll, we'll get into that. So what does this all mean? What can we do? More on that with the, when we return on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law, right here on News Radio WHP 580. It's the Later in Life Planning Show here on News Radio WHP 580. Now your host, Patrick Colley. We are back on the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law. I'm Patrick Cauley. I'm your host. My guest today is Clay Jacobs, the executive director of the Greater Pennsylvania Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. You can find them on the web at alz.org slash PA. If you know anyone who needs to make a call any time of day or night to get some answers, to get some help and some support, to get some resources, the Alzheimer's Association has a 24-7 helpline. That's 800 272 3900. Clay, you know, we've been through a a lot of uh, facts and resources about Alzheimer's disease. And I think after hearing a lot of this, listeners may be wondering, okay, what do I do now? I'm, I'm healthy enough to be listening to this. Maybe all of my family members are healthy enough, but is there a way to prevent this? Is there, are there some best practices? What should I be doing in the meantime? How should I be planning? What would your top advice be along those lines it is really such an important thing and you know you break it out into some important categories right if we're healthy with no concern and no family history or if we're dealing with the disease and i think the first point you mentioned around protection or prevention is really an interesting one because we know broadly what's good for our heart is good for our brain now that's independent of disease process or other things we know what's good for our vascular system is overall good for our brain We know that certain categories of things tend to show benefit to the brain, social activity, mental activity that changes, right? If somebody's gone through on-the-job training or completed so many years of college or learned a language, all these things grow. With diet and exercise, all provide to the general brain health. They don't necessarily prevent the disease, but what they do show is some ways we can reduce risk. And we mentioned research, a lot of that is we can say that anecdotally, we can say that as we see, but... There's always exceptions. There's always the marathon runner who had the disease or other pieces. And so we have to go to the science to determine what can we actually recommend. And I think we've seen tremendous things in recent years in smaller studies or certain populations that certain diets and exercise and other combinations work. Um, Off the air, we mentioned the example of the Finnish geriatric study. They actually called it the finger study. Um, And it showed some of these overwhelming benefits when certain things were put in place. But the challenge is it was with a relatively homogenous population. And so one of the things that came from that is actually a study. So we went from finger to worldwide finger. And in the U.S., it's called the pointer study, right? So we went through with that piece, but it went and looked at places like California and Chicago and South Carolina and different environments and backgrounds and racial and ethnicity and diets and access to outdoor activity. I mean, all of these things to say, okay, if we put in what actually does across populations, across markets, across everything, 
provide benefit to the brain that reduces our risk to the disease. And some of these, like the Pointer study, these exciting trials, release their results within the next year or so. And so we know some things now. There are some things that we also have debunked. So if you ever have questions, that helpline's a great place to call on does ginkgo help my memory or other things we know uh, on some of those trials. But the idea of what is universally good for my brain, what may protect me, uh, I think we're learning a lot more in recent in, in the coming years. But I think no matter what, it is also really important. Protection versus prevention. We're not in an era where we know this prevents you get from getting the disease. There isn't any widespread uh, peer-reviewed research that shows that. But we can show how do we protect, just like we protect for heart disease or reduce our risk of all forms of other disease. And that's why when we talk about Alzheimer's disease, it's not just a disease of aging, but it's a true public health issue. We can do things to reduce our risk to keep less people from getting this disease. And then we start talking about treatment and all these other things add on. It's just so much different than 20 years ago where we just waited until the appropriate level of care and tried to navigate that as best as we can. Sure. And speaking of that, though, I mean, if somebody's listening and that there might be early cognitive impairment, so they have some time to put together a plan, but it really might depend on the individual circumstances of that family is that where the ALZ Navigator might come in? Because I, I found that to be really impressive on the website, alz.org slash PA. Uh, there's this navigator, and it's helping you start to ask questions you might not even know you should be asking about how is the care plan going to evolve as the disease progresses and the behaviors might change. Uh, there's there's information about how you communicate, uh, because communicating with a person who has lost the ability to form words or keeps asking the same thing. I mean, it's going to call on patients. It's going to call on, you know, some resources that people aren't used to, to using. So um, is that, is that an appropriate way to go about putting together a plan? Yeah, it is certainly one of those tools and one we're incredibly proud of, right? At any point in the disease, you can go in and answer questions, be able to get some resources, get information about if it's at a diagnostic point, physicians near you and what questions to ask. If it's later in, how do you navigate nursing home and payment models or all of those things? It's shareable, right? So if you're looking to email it to family who's two hours away, you can do that. It's very much the online version of our care planning sessions, which we all also offer. And so the navigator is just truly that. How do we navigate this disease? The piece I would say that is exciting is not only are we doing that and other organizations but even just recently, Medicare and Medicaid are starting dementia care management pilots starting at your physician's office because it's unlike any other disease where we'd, we would not be able to have those resources. And so the hope is no matter where somebody reaches out, whatever they consider community, now it's often us or their health system. But that as we look ahead, it means that everywhere we go, we do it so folks can navigate the system, navigate the changes in the disease and do what's best for them and their family, and particularly in this disease, for those living with it to have a voice in what that looks like and what that means for them and what what they want, ultimately. And one thing that I'm, I'm personally looking forward to is, you know, just in the last week, there was some news that Medicare, uh, not getting even well beyond Alzheimer's or dementia, uh, is, is trying to do a better job of negotiating with pharmaceutical companies to... Uh, to bring down the cost of prescriptions to the the person covered by Medicare, the the beneficiary of Medicare, um, the reason I find that interesting is because we we spoke about these uh, trials and FDA approvals of 
medications that might slow the progression of Alzheimer's disease. But of course, like any other technology, you know, if you're the first one to have an iPhone right when it came out, it might have been really expensive. They might still have been working out some bugs. And I think that's probably true of these these medications. It's going to be expensive at first. They're still working out some side effects like swelling in the brain in some people and not others. Uh, so, but But eventually, the goal here is to have it widespread, available, affordable. And and if Medicare is taking a, a leadership role in working with the pharmaceutical companies, uh, Medicare and Medicaid, to, to make that happen, I think that that's really encouraging. Yeah, it, it's one of those things. And I think as we talk about things like side effects and what to monitor and who has access, it's really interesting because it's at different points, right? If you're receiving treatment through the Veterans Administration right now, uh, these are fully covered. Right. And if we look at Medicare and Medicaid a little bit differently, even at a state level, as we look at things like the state health insurance program and other pieces. But I think the the really important part to mention is all of this is positive movement. The things we're talking about that just in the past month have come out. Uh, we look at new staging for this disease, similar to how we screen cancer, right? Whether it's a level one stage or four stage or seven and what's effective there. We talk about imaging. Medicare and Medicaid talked about covering pet imaging and have a proposal to for the first time ever. Treatment, we know the VA is covering. We know others are. We know at a state level, too, there's opportunity. Care management, there have been new announcements on what's covered for care management. And prevention, all of these things fundamentally change. And even that, right here in Pennsylvania, the Department of Aging is undergoing something called the Master Plan on Aging right now. And the State Health Improvement Plan that was passed last year for the first time ever included dementia as a state health priority. There are exciting things happening, but it also means that uh, whether you are concerned now or a year from now, it will be different. How you access, how you navigate. Our hope is, through our work of ourselves and our volunteers, that it's better every single day than the day before and over and over and over. But all of this is changing, and it's really because of conversations like this and conversations in community and families who just know that they deserve and need better. And are you and your colleagues, volunteers, having conversations with elected officials about that? I mean, somebody must have been talking to them and sharing the information you're sharing with listeners today. We are. At local, state, and federal levels, we offer opportunities, whether it's a day on the hill or local. We just had Coffee with Congress events where you get to bring families together to talk with their elected officials. Ultimately, we want to provide services now, but policy is one of the ways that people who never know you can benefit from the work you've done. And so people willing to share their story or willing to tell about an impact, that that means so much. And we've really been lucky in Pennsylvania, both at a state and federal level, to have some elected officials who've taken this on and been leaders in the cause um, that we should all be very proud of. Absolutely. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation about Alzheimer's, facts about the disease, resources, emerging treatments and diagnostic techniques, really the hope the, the emerging hope. And Clay Jacobs, I appreciate your time and, and expertise today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So as you hear this, if you want to engage in planning, build that shield to protect you and your family from challenges like dementia, go to keystoneelderlaw.com, use the workshops tab to get registered for an upcoming workshop, learn more, take action, reach out to alz.org PA if you're interested in volunteering or gathering more information. And join us next week for another episode of the Later in Life Planning Show, sponsored by Keystone Elder Law on News Radio WHP 580.